Uh, well, I'd have to um, say that I think you should start at the job or the skills and go backwards from there. Um, because if, if you find the need and, and hopefully the demand, then you can build a real model. Hello and welcome to Vocational Voices, the official podcast of the National Centre for Vocational Education Research, or NCVER for short. I'm Steve Davis, and today's topic is integrating VET and higher education. Our Vocational Voices today are Simon Walker, Managing Director, NCVER. Simon? Hi, Steve. And Megan Lilly, Head of Education and Training, the Australian Industry Group, AI Group. Megan, welcome. Thank you, and hello. Now, enabling student movement between the VET and higher education sectors has been a long-term workforce development policy goal. And yet, here we are in 2022, revisiting the topic again. Can either of you remember the first time this topic surfaced in your careers? And are you surprised it's still a live issue? Megan? Um, well, if I had to confess when I first remembered this topic emerging, um, it would be at the beginning of my career, which was probably close to 30 years ago now. So that, that would be the first moment of truth in this conversation. But um, <laughs> no, and I'm not surprised that we're discussing it again because um, I think often we've discussed um, the issues from the perspective of the system, not the perspective of the needs of the user. But the reality is this has been happening for a long time. We've just made it very, very difficult for people. Okay. Simon, your take? Yeah. Well, I, I've been in the sector for, for a similar period and my experience is much the same as Megan's. And I think one of the issues, and I know it sounds a little pedantic, but the notion of an integrated sector, the term integrated, is probably not really what people are seeking. And I, know, I remember when Peter Noonan did his review of the AQF, he was, uh, God bless Peter, of course, uh, but he uh, was very clear that I don't think integration is the goal, but greater connectedness and fluidity between the sectors. All right. Well, you've both helped set the scene. Thank you very much. Let's dive into it afresh then, given that it is 2022. Uh, as it stands at the moment, okay, if I wanted to progress at work and further my career skills, I could enrol in a VET course with a competency-based learning focus for my particular occupation, or I could enter the higher education sector, take a more academic approach and ground my career with some underpinning knowledge. Why do we want to integrate these pathways? What is the problem we're trying to solve on this topic, Megan? Yeah, look, a great question. And just to pick up on the comment that Simon made before, um, I think the word integrated is partly um, problematic in this discussion um, but because um, do we want to integrate the sectors? Do we want to merge them? Are we talking about qualifications that have relationships or have blended elements? And I think that there's or manner of variation in all of that. And, and um, you know, to, what's the problem? What's the need? So I think they're all really good questions. And I too would like to, you know, acknowledge Peter Noonan's work on the AQF, and I was a member of that panel. And really, um, while we've got the current policy architecture that we've got, in particular the AQF, we are going to continue to have um, difficult conversations around how do we get the best um, relationship between vocational education and higher education because we've got um, structural impediments at that place. And this is really, of course, what we're talking about now. Um, so what is the problem we're trying to solve? Well, I mean, we can talk about it from the point of view of the um, qualification design 
um, different sexual differences, all those sorts of things. But I think really I should come at it from a slightly different point of view. And I think that the problem we're trying to solve, or at least the opportunity might be a more constructive way of looking at it, there is this um, fairly niche but growing um, need for skills, particularly at the paraprofessional into the professional area, often with a technical basis to them, um, that are very poorly served by qualifications at the moment and also um, often require elements that we would traditionally find located in the two separate sectors, and I say separate in this instance, and that is there an easier and better way that we can actually do something about that that space, that technician paraprofessional space, um, in a much more contemporary way? Because a lot of the impediments that are in place at the moment, or the problems, if you want to describe them like that, are actually um, constructs of sectors, but they don't actually relate necessarily to um, real jobs, real work, and what's actually emerging emerging in the workplace in terms of skills for the future. So it depends where we want to look as to what problem we see and also what opportunities and solutions we can derive. I get the impression from that answer, Megan, that perhaps another problem with this framing is that there's integration but there's a continuum of different occupations where some uh, some integration might be more helpful or beneficial than others it's it's not a one-size-fits-all i completely agree with that and i think um we've been bedeviled by one-size-fits-all solutions to all manner of things and you know i think that there we need a lot more nuancing I, i think we're well enough advanced in all this stuff to work out how to do that and some, sometimes it's a continuum and it's an upward continuum. Sometimes, I mean, people move both ways between sectors. Um, sometimes people start off with theory or knowledge-based stuff and like to then progress to application. Many university graduate engineers do trade-based units when they get into the workplace to build that application. There's many, many sort of um, strategies in this place and I, I think that we need to look at them differently and allow variation to occur. All right. Now, Simon, uh, you've got your finger on figures. Uh, have you got some data on the numbers of students who transition from one sector to another, such as moving from higher education and then opting for vet qualification and vice versa? Well, I'm going to disappoint you this time, Steve. <laughs> there is no answer to that question uh, or no definitive answer. Um, however, there has been some estimations. But before I talk about that, uh, looking at Trying to answer that question, there are, there are a couple of key issues. One is the data constraints and one is the nuance in the question, and I'll get to that in a minute. If we look at the data constraints, the single biggest problem is we don't have a unified student identifier. There is an identifier in the higher education sector, the Chesson, and we have, of course, the unique student identifier in the VET sector, but they are not unified or explicitly linked. So that, of course, is a major constraint when you're trying to do a study of this type. Similarly, the time series, and and when we ask that question, are we talking about at any time in a person's life, the studies that have been done have been a narrow or narrower range of years, and I'll talk a little bit about those two. Um, So that's your first problem. Uh, Secondly, it's about the question. If we're talking, I think a lot of people when they conceive of that question, are thinking about a VET graduate going into higher education, participating in a graduate degree and potentially completing, 
that then discounts all the other movements, some of which Megan has just mentioned, around single units and short courses and the like, which is the predominant pathway going from higher education to vet, and I'll come back to that. Mm -hmm. And, of course, you'd want to discount the vet that's done in schools because, uh, as we know, a lot of vet is now conducted in schools, including for people who are on ATAR pathways going to higher education. <laughs> so you would have to conceive of the question as being post-school vet to post-school higher ed or vice versa. So with those broad assumptions in play, there have been a couple of studies done. Uh, one reasonably comprehensive one using administrative data by the Department of Education, Skills and Employment, who got uh, a multiple years of both cohorts, did some other data linkage, obviously not the unified data student identifier. And to cut a long story short, they come up with a number that is around about 1% who moved from VET to higher education. They did, however, uh, acknowledge that that was a likely underestimate. Okay. Okay. Um, another study that I'm aware of using our longitudinal survey of Australian youth. Again, the constraint there is we're only surveying people between the ages of 15 and 25. We don't know what they might have done after that age. They came up with a number that was closer to 6 or 7%, but they were, again, by no means definitive. So if that gives you any kind of range by which you might want to attach your <laughs> analysis to, uh, but you know, none of it is definitive in that sense. Going the other way, and there is a generally held view that there is a greater movement between higher ed to vet, and I think based certainly on our analysis, and I'll talk a little bit about a couple of those things, uh, that's probably true, but primarily because the participation in vet after higher education is almost predominantly in short courses. And remember, over a million people a year enrol in a, an accredited first aid course. You would have to expect a proportion of those to be university qualified. Megan made a really good example around qualified engineers doing postgraduate studies. And of course, we have other licensing type avenues like responsible service of alcohol and white cars and all those things that are very vet oriented but have, a, if you like, an occupational licensing component. So that is by far and away, I think, the biggest movement between the sectors of higher education to vet. Um, so look, in summary, unclear. <laughs> it's probably greater movement between higher education to vet, but primarily in short courses in that sort of licensing world. Just on the people who may do a post higher ed qualification in vet, there are some long-standing articulations. For instance, the Diploma of Management. For those who are old enough, they used to call it frontline management. So people who have got a university degree, gone into the workforce, want to get into a management role. Uh, the Diploma of Management, the VET Diploma of Management, is a very clear pathway, and that's been used for decades. And the one that's emerged more recently is childcare, which I think has some sociological factors to it. So presumably women in particular who've gone to university, then started a family and then looking for a, a career once they return to the workforce and because of the uh, accreditation requirements in childcare uh, have to do a certificate or a diploma. So in the sense that I've confused you entirely, mm -hmm. that's what I understand the articulations to be. Thank you, Simon. I've made a note to be more specific in my questions to you in the future. Uh, but thank you. Now, here's a quote uh, from an NCVER paper by Tanya Bretherton. It was published in 2011. For skills acquired through VET to be evaluated free 
of the perhaps negative connotations of work-based learning, a number of factors need to be addressed. Some academics advocate for the creation of a continuum of skills, which forms more definite and direct links between VET and higher education. Now, this brings up value judgments, which sit close to the surface for many stakeholders, students and industry in particular. Megan, do you think the, in quotes, different learning styles between the two pathways is a big factor here? For example, does the industry look down upon VET hands-on, competency-based learning while being in awe of higher education's theoretical and academic frameworks? Or is industry fine with VET, but it's social stigma that robs us of some candidates? Well, it's an interesting proposition, isn't it, to suggest that industry looks down on VET and up to higher education. And I struggle with that um, dynamic or that sort of binary view of it. I mean, I, I think industry would hopefully um, be deeply engaged in both and respectfully look on and participate with them. I don't think hand skills are down and academia is up. Um, I think we need to really move past that entire conversation and look at sort of applied learning um, and sort of more theoretical approach to learning um, but, but that actually extends at all levels across the AQS if we, we have a moment of honesty. And I think that um, we should build the value up of all of that. So I, I, I don't accept the up, looking up, looking down component. Uh, however, it is important that I do admit that there has been some stigma attached to this, this over time that's been pretty historically derived and... Um, it's probably be, been reinforced by sort of um, a lot of aspiration to um, for you know future generations of, to you know have professional or white collar jobs. I, I think we're also beginning to move past that, um, but I, I think that we really do need to move the stigma apart away from any form of learning. I think learning in all its various forms is a positive thing and it is not limited or restricted to that. You can move from different types of learning, um, have different progressions um, and and change careers as many people will do over their life. So we've got to rebalance this whole question, remove the stigmas and get a better, better balance, balance between knowledge, skills and application. And I actually think the revised ATS suggests exactly that. <laughs> Yeah, I thought it might be useful just to give you some early insights and some research that we're still working our way through, but which has got to a stage where some of the early findings are coming out. And it's a study uh, that uses a case study approach on four occupations, surveyors, childcare workers, lab technicians and graphic designers, where we know people are employed both as VET graduates and or higher education graduates. Mm. So we're doing that deliberately to see if there are any different outcomes for those people, whether they went through a VET pathway or a higher education pathway. And one of the, I think, early observations of that that I found interesting and which sort of goes to the heart of your question is, when we spoke to employers about, well, how do you discriminate between the worker who graduated from either sector? In short, they don't. They are looking at people who can do the job. And they don't have a particular view about whether someone is a university graduate or a vet graduate as long as they can perform the role. And I thought that tells a bit of a story about the demand side of employers is that they're looking at skills. Wow. So pragmatism. Yep. 
Um, I just wonder, just just dealing with this, though, do you think we'd find grounds for a stronger argument in favour of a more integrated tertiary sector if we argued that would it help people navigate a future of continuous change that's being driven by constant technological and workplace advancements? Simon? Yeah, it goes back to that early conversation, uh, which is... And, and really, Megan hit the nail on the head here. It's about the ease to which you can move between the sectors in your study program. There are too many constraints, and you know we could talk about that for a long time here. But one of the other issues that came up in this study that I just referred to is a comment from employers. They've got to make it easier for people who, for instance, did a vet course to be able to take up some components of a university course and vice versa, in particular how they are recognised between the sectors. And this has been an enduring issue. It goes to the heart of the AQF review. How can you do that better and easier for the individual and uh, consequently the employer? All right. Now, you just touched on the recognition aspect and the difficulties there. I want to look flip the coin because if we assume that we all agree integration is the best option, the NCVR paper, The Best of Both Worlds, Integrating Vet and Higher Education, it notes that the main barrier to integration is the time and expertise needed to map vet and higher education content. It's expensive. Is it in Australia's interest for the government to fund this mapping or are there intrinsic opportunities for building this into our system? Look, that would be one way to go and it's a fairly sort of technocratic way of approaching an issue <laughs> and um, I would also sort of describe it as you know if we're looking at the sectors as being an iceberg and the user whether it's an individual or an industry or company you know they, they intersect with a bit above the water and, and it, it, what this activity is is part of the stuff below the water and, and they don't need to see that um, but I also do accept that it's expensive and time consuming and what um, whatnot. but I, I also think probably a, a better way to go would be there are new and emerging areas um, in, in our economy. There's a lot of transformation happening. And if you actually identify some of those new areas and you actually drive, whether it's integration or cohesion, and I think it's an interesting question because integration, we don't want to lose the best of both. So we need to mm. make sure we're getting that language right. But um, if you find one of these sort of newer areas and you build new models in a new space that actually intuitively or instinctively take from both or, or don't recognise that they're separate but they're creating this new space and I think you know some of the digital industry 4.0 stuff um, lends itself to that we can develop some new models in that space and actually drive change in a different way because we've been trying to do it the other way for a very long time without very much success. Megan, if I understand you correctly, you're saying that uh, in the new fields, we're less likely to enc encounter this uh, divergence between the two because we can make things up that bring those elements together. It's where we have the legacy traditional roles and roots that this is a harder task. Uh, that's right, uh, although I should be careful to um, not suggest it because it's a new or newer area. Gosh, it's going to be easy because, um, you, you know, if, if that was the case, it would probably already be done. But I think that there's less um, historical baggage and um, assumption made 
and and if you get the right players and right leadership and you get the demand driven by real needs, real work, real industry, I think we could probably reposition it. Simon? Uh, look, I, I agree with everything that Megan said um, because we end up coming full circle back to some integration of institutional structures, which has never worked and is not likely to work. The accreditation structures, the institutional structures of a university versus an RTO, the practices of RTOs and universities, the design of courses and so on and curriculum and so on. The opportunities do lie in the, in the new occupational areas where you build that from the start. You don't try and merge the existing um, constraints that we have in a way that, quite frankly, hasn't worked and is not likely to. Can I just steer in a slightly different direction? Because I think it's my old journalism habits here. I've gone for the sensational thing where we have differences and struggles. But case studies, Simon, especially with the news, the reports that you're publishing, are there some case studies where this integration is actually working well? All right, well, I'm going to just lead you through to the answer to that question because the study you're referring to looked at different models of, and again, I hesitate to use the word integration, but nonetheless, it had four broad categories of integration where you had more of an articulation model and there were two types. One, a very formal, informal articulation, what they called the endorsed model. In other words, you weren't guaranteed credit if you did a VET course to go into university. Then the articulation where there is guaranteed credit and it's codified. So, for example, you do a diploma in X and that'll give you the first year credit for a university degree. Then the consecutive model, you're trying to teach both things, higher education and VET at the same time. And then this holy grail of integration or what they call the embedded model where you're actually teaching both simultaneously, all right? Um, So to answer your question on that last one, which is sort of more purely focused on your question, they couldn't find one. There was a model built, but there was no enrolments. Wow, which touches on Megan's thing about Uh, is there demand? Yeah, Mm. very much so. So that's it? That's it. Uh, so, look, it, it's, a, it's a qualitative research project. You can't cover every possibility that's out there. But it does tell you in that report just how, how hard it is. All right. Now, if I show my age here, there were some ads many years ago for Yogi Bear chocolate bars. And the famous saying was, start at the knees, please. So, I want to turn this around again. Start at the qualification outcomes. There's a red-hot focus at the moment on micro-credentials in both VET and higher education sectors. Could this focus give us some common ground for approaching a more integrated tertiary sector? Uh, Well, I'd have to um, say that I think you should start at the job or the skills and go backwards from there. Um, Because if if you find the need um, and, and hopefully the demand... Um, then you can build a real model. And, and, you know, back to Simon's last point on the couldn't find the real blended model in, you know, you could find it on a shelf but not in um, not in practice. Mm. And, and um, I don't exactly... Um, I think that... I'm not, I'm not um, suggesting it's not true for a, a second, but I guess it depends where you start building the model from. So we're doing some work with some companies at the moment. They're building their model from, from the company perspective. Now, they're very large companies that can afford to do it um, and international companies, BAE Systems is one of them um, but, but I think that that's what we've got to start you've got to start from the job and the skills and then you can look at qualification outcomes and micro-credentials and anything else you might want to 
in that bucket. But I just think we need to to get this up. I think that's where we need to start from. Because that that takes the mapping into account, doesn't it? Well, it does, but it could also be new development. Um, you know, I'm not presuming what, what it would be comprised of. Um, and, you know, drawn from the best of pre-existing stuff and all of the above. But if it's a new tech area, there'll have to be new development in it as well. So that's another opportunity. Um, and I, I just think it, um, it, it will just help drive forward this conversation rather than where you've got very strong options in both sectors and other pre-existing, well-understood occupational areas, there's not much incentive for people to move from what they already understand. Simon, of all the people I know, you use the term micro-credentials more than anyone. (laughs) What's your two, Bob, on this particular question? Um, Again, I come back to this notion of of whether it's about integration or whether it's uh, making it... Uh, more available that there are options for micro-credentials are easier to access theoretically and, and certainly less impost on time for both companies and individuals. Uh, and look, we've got a, a, a so-called micro-credentials platform or marketplace or something which has only got higher ed um, micro-credentials currently being sort of promoted out there um, and yet we know that VET is largely or dominated by uh, participation in micro-credentials in a broader sense of the word. So the idea that people could become made more aware of those options and their linkages to their employment. So I I absolutely agree with Megan around there's got to be a demand and there's got to be an occupational outcome or a rationale for actually doing this in the first place. And I think, Megan, the program you just referred to was the is that the advanced apprenticeship in manufacturing is that one? Oh, that's one of them yes yeah so but that is a good example of ground up mm. and and it wasn't an easy task if i understand it rightly to actually get all that in place but what what is critical in that is you had a, a large multinational company and, and a few other firms involved you had scale and you had resources to be able to put that in place that has an applicability in that situation. Very difficult to do that in smaller business areas or fragmented service areas. So that's going to be a bit of a challenge, I think, for people. But there is something about what Megan was saying, starting with the job in mind. Absolutely. Because it's like you buy a red car and suddenly you see all the red cars. So with a job in mind, you suddenly see all the pieces of the puzzle that make sense to fit together in a specific way. Absolutely. Final thoughts now. Um, who needs to step up to the plate uh, first to get some momentum on this issue uh, if you think this issue is worthy and achievable? And we've certainly brought some nuance out in the discussion at our time together. But, Megan, can I start with you? What, what would you like to see? Who, who are the players here who have a great chance of making this become real? Look, I mean, the, the ultimate answer is that everyone needs to step up to the plate, which, of course, is an invitation for nobody to step up to the plate. <laughs> so um, moving on from that, um, uh, look, look, I like to think at AI Group here we are showing some leadership on this because we did the original Industry 4.0 um, Advanced Apprenticeship with Siemens and others. We are now doing the a systems engineering one with BAE Systems, which is their UK model, and we're helping them do it here in Australia starting hopefully next year with Vic Uni. But um, but that also, they're, they're committed to doing that through their whole supply chain. So that picks up a little bit what someone was saying about how, you know, a big company's got a distinct resource and other advantage. So 
that there is actually a model emerging that's beyond the big companies. And we're also doing one in electrical um, between um, trade qualifications and um, university um, qualifications. So that one's just soon to um, unfold. So so I think there is some emerging industry leadership, um, which is absolutely and utterly driven by real need in the workplace. Companies don't invent projects, but they have a real need. And so we're helping that but we cannot do this on our own. It's hard stuff. And you really, really to work with the system and the sectors takes a lot of knowledge, a lot of perseverance um, and and a lot of goodwill. So, you know, we would love to have more collaboration from, you know, state governments, Commonwealth governments, regulators, any other agencies that are required because it, it's hard stuff but it's still worthwhile. But if I just have my marketing hat on for a second, I know in many industries, if you're trying a new product, sometimes it's a benefit to wait for a big player to come through, educate the marketplace so everyone gets it, and then you can do your marketing of what you bring to the table. In some ways, what you're saying, these bigger companies who are crafting this themselves, once we get some of these happening and bedded down in their uh, studies, their, their case studies, would that make it easier for the system to go, ah, yes, we get it, now we can see how to replicate it? Do you think that is an important part AI group and industry itself is bringing to the table? I think that is part of it, but it does, that doesn't necessarily remove some of the structural impediments or um, disincentives that are actually in the system. Um, so, you know, unless mm. we move to a more coherent tertiary sector, I think some of those impediments will remain in place. Unless, of course, we actually fully implement the revised ATF, which would actually start dealing with some of these issues. <laughs> you just made Simon raise his finger, Simon. Well, I was anticipating me getting asked that same question. My first thing would have been the AQF review. It's, it was done, well, two and a half, three years ago. And, and as far as I can tell, really nothing's happened. And yet it goes to the heart of this whole discussion. So I think that's the first thing that governments could do. And then there are these, if you like, institutional constraints, uh, funding and, and sectoral um, divides, which are not easy to do. So I, I certainly couldn't say you could fix this tomorrow, but I think a bit more effort could be made to, uh, to relax some of those things as well. Megan Lilly from AI Group, thank you for joining Vocational Voices. My pleasure. And Simon Walker, NCVR, thank you. Thanks, Steve. Vocational Voices is produced by NCVER on behalf of the Australian Government and State and Territory Governments with funding provided through the Australian Government Department of Education, Skills and Employment. For further information, please visit ncver.edu.au.